This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. How much drafting does a fully licensed architect do? What is something you learned in the industry that you hadn't been taught in school? Are you as condescending to your employees as your red lines let on? All this and potentially other hateful questions on today's episode as Xander and I answer and discuss the questions submitted by you, the listener. Welcome to episode 108, Ask the Show. Today's episode is generously supported by Peterson, manufacturer of pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are answering your questions, which, as always, I will admit that this is one of the more fun episodes that we get to do. So once we record, sometimes it's a little much to sift through all the questions, but once we get to recording, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, so today's show is made up of questions that were submitted through my Instagram account. You know, technically, I ask people to submit the questions and then they submit them and we go through them and we catalog them and we choose about 10 or so that we think are interesting and that we could effectively and interestingly handle when only allotting ourselves about five to six minutes per answer. So if you submitted a question and we didn't answer it here, it's probably because your question is either a topic that we plan on really drilling down on in a later episode. It was too complicated and specific to you, the submitter, that nobody else would really be invested in the answer. How does Bob Borson get more work? Like, that's not a good question. Yeah, sure, sure. Nobody else cares, right? Or it didn't make sense. <laughs> Meaning, like, it wasn't in the form of a question. Yeah. Like, someone might submit- Three words. Women? Question mark. And I'm like, yeah. what about them? Check. Yeah. They it's exist. hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to guess. Yeah. So, and the other thing that we should point out is when we get these questions submitted in, we have this master sheet that we put together. And then we identify which ones we think that we can effectively co-mingle pleasantly with one another. And so we have this giant list of questions, even though I keep asking for more questions. So of the 10 or so that we might work through today, they're not all from the most recent round of submitted questions. So they might be from the one two shows ago or a show ago or whatever the case may be. Yeah, we got a bit of a backlog in the questions, so we just pick through them and try to get to the ones we can. Yeah. Some of them may have not been submitted just this round. They might have come from, like you say, the spring edition or even before that, maybe. Yeah. We keep all your questions, so don't stop submitting them. Someday they might show up. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into it so we don't burn any more time than necessary so we can try to get through as many of these as possible. All right? Yeah. Sounds good. All right. The first question comes from Allison Harris. Shout out to Allison. Her question was, should we be more realistic about true practice in school or keep the romantic ideals? This is a good question. Mm-hmm. Sure is. That's why I let off with it. Sounds good. I'd like to get your take. I mean, I can say mine has probably changed a little bit now that I'm teaching. Okay, so here's off the top of my head. So if I can only choose between those two options, I would choose the romantic ideals. Mostly because... I believe that you go to school to learn how to learn, and for architects, this manifests itself into critical thinking. I know that that's not really the point of Allison's question, mm -hmm. 
it has more to do with making sure that architecture students are prepared when they come out of school and they're equipped with the knowledge that they need not only to be successful, but to contribute in a meaningful way and not lean on the profession to continue their education for another three plus years so they can learn how to do what they need to do, so on and so forth. Our entire profession is built upon an internship period. So we're already conceding that the industry is going to teach you things that the educational process did not. That's facts. Yes. I now approach this question a little bit differently because to me, that's not the way that I would interpret that question. I think the thing I hear most about from my students is that there's not enough realism about what architecture practice is really like. Most kids come out of school and they don't have any idea about what their daily lives are going to be or what sure. the process is like. Sure. And I find that many of them become disenfranchised really early because practice and school are so completely different. Yeah. In a lot of instances, not always, but in a lot of instances. And so it's not what they thought it was going to be. And so they get kind of angry, even, you know, they feel a little disenfranchised about, well, this is nothing like what I did in school and nobody in school talked about this is what it was going to be. And so it's this sort of kick in the chest when they start working and it's not all design and it's not all of the things that they learned in school. And so I I think to me, it's critical to try to find some kind of balance between those two. In my opinion, it can't be one or the other. It's got to be this mix of both. But finding that right mix is really important. And I think it's difficult because, like you say, part of it is we're trying to teach students how to learn and how to think critically about the processes that they're learning and the things that they're doing, all these considerations that they have to deal with as an architect. But it can't be devoid of what actually happens in practice. And sometimes I think that that's where that gets lost is because students come to school and they have no idea what practice is like. Nobody talks to them about what working is really like and the things that you do. Okay, well, okay, well, look, before we go too far down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So here's what I wonder. Okay. I take that question the same way. I thought that was the direction that I was taking it about do you go to school to learn how to think and learn and as opposed to learn how to do something, which is more of a realistic understanding of what your job might actually be. Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is people come into the educational process without any real understanding of what architects do. What are the different kinds? Like you could be a a designer, you could be a project architect, a project manager. I mean, it goes on and on and on. For sure, for sure. Those roles are not really explained or articulated. Or presented or anything. During the educational process. Yeah. Everybody thinks they're going to be a designer. You know, nobody comes out of school. Well, at least the numbers are low. I won't say nobody. The people that come out go, oh, I thought I was going to be a designer, but then I really learned how much I love specs. They're not even presented really that option as part of a path. And Mm -hmm. so I wonder how much of it is, does the educational process start to say, look, we're going to treat your education like a primer. And this has its own problems to it, which I will concede has to do with time in school, right? We do a primer, we do an overview. Here's the different options that you have. And then from this point, you can go down one of these paths, figure out like you go, oh, I like design, but it's not the thing that drives me. I'd much rather learn how to put together. Yeah. I'm more interested in project management or something or Yeah. Yeah. Understand what that is so that you can then really do more of a deep dive on the path that you think more aligns with your skill set and your knowledge and your interests. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, it's an interesting thing to think about implementing. The challenge is, is this is why it it could actually work, is the first kind of obvious, ooh, here's the problem with that, is it it would add too much time to how long you need to be in school. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is 
maybe you get to scrape off a bunch of the stuff that you spend time studying that you won't ever use because that's not the path you're taking. So it's possible that you could do a one-year primer to kind of understand the different routes that you have and then do three years after that that's more deeply focused on the path that you choose, whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's possible. But then there's accreditation boards and all these other kind of things that steer so much of that. It's kind of a logistical nightmare. It is a logistical nightmare. Yeah. I would also say I think there's a difference between even just the schools that you can attend where their focus leans more towards maybe realistic about true practice versus romantic ideas. I think there's a lot of variation there just in the school that you choose to attend even in that regard. So it's a difficult question. It is a difficult question. I would still vote. Okay. So the answer to that question is it can't be either. It's a bit of both. It's got to be both, yeah. But if I'm salting the soup, our architecture student education soup, mm-hmm. I would probably put more romantic ideals in my pot than I would the true practice part because it still comes down to, I want people to know how to think. I want to know how to process information. I want them to take two disparate pieces of information and be able to do something new. Architects are supposed to be thinking about solving problems that don't exist yet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you can do that effectively if you don't teach people how to think. And that's really what architecture school is supposed to be about. In my mind, that's like the big Roman numeral one. Yeah. Okay. All right, Allison, thanks for your question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I agree with all that, but okay. That's okay. You don't have to agree with all that. I know. So let's go to the next question. Sure. From Colin Balbach. Let me just say, if I butcher your name, folks, sorry, it's not intentional. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Colin asks, should architecture students go through all six years of their education at once or do the four and then go work for a few years to gain experience and all that kind of good stuff and then go get their master's? You know what? Let's just, Colin, I'm just going to remove the years. The question really is, should you go get your undergraduate, go work for a couple of years and then go get a master's? Let's leave out the part, well, some people have to go get a master's in order to get a license. Not everybody does. Like, I wouldn't have to if I went and got my master's. Yeah. So the point is, undergraduate, work for a couple years, then master's, does that have value? So since you're a professor and you have a master's degree, why don't you answer this question first? I think it depends. No. No, 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 but my gut instinct would be yes. I would say take a break. Yeah. I, that's what I advise most of my students to do is to take a break, but not too long of a break because then you get lost in getting a paycheck and life and all this kind of stuff and it gets harder to get back. But I think it's important for you to take that break and go work and gain the experience because just like we were talking about in the last question, you can start to learn and figure out things about the profession that interest you. Yes. And that will help when you go to graduate school to get your master's degree and you can focus on the things that interest you. Yes. That's a much better option, I think, in my mind, than just going straight through. Even though I went straight through, but that was because I wanted to teach back then. So, Yeah, but the difference is, is you actually went to two different schools for your undergraduate True. and your graduate. And I think that's a yes. really important distinction because if you do put the break in between your undergraduate and your graduate and you learn more what your interest is and what, what kind of things you want to focus on, that might actually tell you what school you should go to to get your master's exactly yes instead of just going i enrolled in school a and i'm just going to roll straight through four plus two at the same school yes i would agree which i have a problem with that i don't like that process anyway to be honest with Mm. you so 
Yeah. There are financial concerns, considerations with that as well. But if you're good and smart about it, you can actually save a little bit of money to go to school even while you're working. There's benefits to it. But I think the idea of, again, being able to learn more about the profession since you might not get enough of it in your undergraduate degree to figure out what your interests are, and then you can focus yourself for graduate studies. All right. Well, it seems like we're in alignment on that one, I think. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's go to the next question. We're rolling through, man. Knocking these out. Yeah. The next question comes from campaign.mo. Their question is, what key thing, or I would say things, do you look for in potential new hires? All right. Since I'm actually in the position to hire people. I hired a lot of people, but I haven't recently. Yes. You know, it's funny. I've written a lot of articles about this. We've talked about the value of portfolios, the role they play, like what's important, what kind of things do I evaluate? And I'm always kind of surprised when people, they hear that and they go, what do you mean you don't like really look at the projects? And I go, well, I mean, I look at them, but at that point, I've already looked at your portfolio enough to get you in the room. Mm-hmm. Now that you're in the room, I'm looking for other things. I'm looking at it eye contact and how you answer questions and what words you use and are you hemming and hawing. I'm looking for a certain level of intelligence in people's vocabulary and how they speak and how they carry themselves is a really good indicator of how their brain works. And I know that if I can get my hands on somebody who's really smart, I can get them wherever they need to be. So when I look for new hires, this answer might actually show up again later. It's how they communicate. It's how they talk. Passion, that's all important too. I will say that I interviewed a young man and he was so excited to talk about one of the projects that he was showing us. And I was like, man, how long has it been since somebody just was like, let me show you the greatest project ever done. <laughs> I mean, he loved it. He was so excited about it. Yeah. And it told me a little bit about who he was as a person. And we've talked about this before that Sometimes when you evaluate people, it's almost as much what they don't do or the things that happen in between the things they do do that become the deciding thing as to whether or not you go, yes, that's my person right there. Yeah. For me, it's the ability to communicate. That's really important to me. I think communication is really strong for me as well. And it's also kind of attitude, which relates to that stuff. Like you said, the way they handle themselves in the interview and the things that they can talk about. I look for always look for a little bit of eagerness as well. They want to do stuff and they want to be there. They seem like they want to. Not that they're just having to come to this interview, but they want to be there. Right. It's not just a job. And yeah. then after that, it was also, to me, it was just demeanor and things. That, did I feel like they were going to fit in the office well? And some of that is just personality-based. And it's easier to do that, again, in a small firm than it is in a large firm because the culture of a small firm is much more tight-knit. So mm-hmm. interjecting someone into that gets to be a little bit more tricky. But I agree with you that rarely is it portfolio or cover letter, any kind of stuff. I mean, I like I read through some of that stuff to see, again, how they articulate themselves and communicate in text, in written form also, because that's going to be a big part of what they're doing, you know, whether it's even just emails to consultants and things like that. But I agree with you on most of that. It's, it's more about how you appear and present yourself and communicate during the interview than it has to do with your portfolio or your experience. Sometimes, I mean, experience plays in. Sure. Even with no experience, if you seem like you're really intelligent and you want to work and you have a good attitude, that gets you a long, long way. I will say I've never hired somebody because of a spectacular cover letter. 
but I've definitely not hired people <laughs> because of a terrible because one. of yeah. a poor exactly. cover letter. Yeah. Yes. So that kind of tells you that stuff is important and you shouldn't dismiss it. And I'm certainly not trying to suggest that those things don't matter. Quality of your work, the quality of your graphics, your ability to have certain mastery over the software that our industry uses. These all are important. But if somebody comes out of school and they say, I don't know Revit, as an example, that would not be a reason for me to not consider them as an employee. So I go, well, if you've got the other skills that I need, you'll learn Revit. Like, you can learn it. Yeah, somebody can teach you that, for sure. So, you know, the number of questions I get people, they go, how do I get experience if I don't have any experience? Which seems like a, a reasonable thing to ask. Yeah. But I've hired lots of people that didn't have experience. Yeah. I mean, I have too. And it just gets harder and harder now because there's so many graduates. Not everybody's going to have experience. So you just kind of have to roll with it. Yeah. So that shouldn't be a hurdle for, yeah. for folks. So hopefully we addressed enough of that question to point you in the right direction. The next question that we have comes from N3 Architecture. And we included this question on the list basically because of persistence. <laughs> this is like the second or third time that this question has been submitted by this person. So I go, we really should. Let's see if we can't get this question answered. I will say part of the reason we didn't answer before, I'm not really sure how to answer it. Yeah. That's the challenging part. This is a challenging question. It's a good question, but it's a challenging one. Yeah. There's so many different ways that you can come at this one. So here, look, here's the question. How can a sole practitioner expand their geographic reach? And so part of me gets a bit of an eyebrow and I go, if you're a sole practitioner, why do you need to expand your geographic reach? There should be plenty of work where you're at before you need to start worrying about getting work in other places. Because you know what? Working remotely, I'm about to say something sounds stupid. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah, let's do it. Working remotely is harder than not working remotely. And I don't mean remote, like me sitting in my house. Like office remotely, yes. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about client meetings are more difficult when you can't be yeah. in the room. Going to the job site's harder when you can't go to the job site with you know, a certain amount of regularity. Mm -hmm. So there's certain considerations to that. So as a sole practitioner... Part of me goes, I would worry less about working remotely and more about, well, how can I just grow my practice in the area where I live? Now, I don't know this person. Maybe they live in a remote island off the coast of Maine. Well. <laughs> Someone else we know. I mean, I would say to that, right, it depends on your location. Even in where I live is a fairly, I mean, to me it's a small place, but you've got to reach outside of our local area if you wanted to be financially successful. You, there's not enough work locally for you to do that. But it depends on how far. Yeah. So let's ask this question. As a sole practitioner, that tells me they're probably residential, right? Possibly, yeah. I would say that's an 80% chance, yeah. Well, okay. So we have our buddy Lee mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania who does residential and light commercial mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. So I, I'm not trying to put anybody in a box here. Yeah. Okay. So here, here's the question. How could you expand your geographic reach? Well, I do projects all over the country and I can tell you what I did to make that happen. <laughs> As I started a blog in 2010 that kind of turned into a big deal and people visit it all the time. I, that's what I did. Yeah, but nobody can do that. But nobody can do that anymore. It's more difficult. Well, not too many people can do it, yeah. right? We have other friends that kind of started going down that path and they found different ways to broaden their reach. Like they got engaged in, I don't know, like on LinkedIn in certain places. Yeah, I guess we're talking about how far of a geographic, are we talking about other states? Are we talking about next county over? 
And if it's just next county over, the answer is, well, get involved in that next county over. Sit on a board. Volunteer your time at some kind yeah. of charitable yeah. organization that's in that area. Really, this all has to do with who you know and where they are. That's kind of how that works. Yeah. And I'm not saying that like it's easy. I don't mean to suggest that's easy. No, it's not. But I mean, I would say the simplest thing would be to try to grow your network of people in whatever area it is you want to expand to. And if that's through professional organizations like AIA or charitable organizations or just getting to know other architects or contractors, anything like that, it's trying to expand that network bigger than your local area and into whatever area it is that you want to go. Whether that is, like you say, the next county over, the next state over or whatever. I think the easiest, and again, it's not easy, but the easiest way to do it is to try to grow your network and find connections in those places where you want to be. Yeah. That takes work and it's hard. And it's slow, right? It's not like you're going to find somebody and go, hey, yeah, I've got 30 jobs in, this, in the next county over. They're all yours. Come on. It won't work that way, but it takes time. But you got to put in the effort. That business development stuff that we've talked about before, that's not always a lot of fun, but you got to put your time in. Well, I wonder how much of it is if you're trying to grow your practice. Like when we had Omar Ghani on the show, he talked about how he was taking the teeniest, littlest, tiniest of projects wherever. Like he's like, I did a deck. Didn't he say he did a deck for somebody? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, he started making connections with contractors and things like that. One of the things I give work away all the time. I mean, I'm pretty busy. I work a lot of hours and some of you might say, hey, can you help me with fill in the blank? Yeah. And the truth is, is I can't just I don't have the time. And so yeah, I have a handful of people that are scattered about and I'll say, hey, do you have the time to help this person out? And I've given away full-on big projects some of them i kick myself after i do it but yeah yeah so the reason i bring that up is even broadening your network to include other architects who might be able to be in a position to say we don't have the ability to take on this work or it's too small for us or we just can't make it work and you as a sole practitioner might be exactly the sort of person that can take on this kind of project that a 10-person shop might not want to or have the ability to yeah you don't just have to sit on boards. Part of it's just get to know other architects yeah, and let them know that you're open for taking on that type of work. Yeah, because I used to do that all the time, too, in my office. Since we didn't do any residential work and people would call up and want to do residential work, there was two or three other local people that I would be like, try this person or try that person. You know, they'd be more than willing to help you out if they can. But yeah, so, I mean, it's things like that. You find what that is, like you say. Sometimes other architects are your best source of other work because they might not want to do it or have the time. Or the desire. So, yeah, I will say there's been a couple of times when somebody has called me up and they're saying, Hey, this firm X said I should call you to do this project. Well, then I'll get off the phone. I'll call firm X and I'll go, What's happening here? Yeah. Thanks for nothing. Why didn't you take this job? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, what do you, what is it that you know that you're not telling me? Like, why did you give up this project? Mm -hmm. There's sometimes, depending on the source, you kind of what it is, sure. A, what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and it also, I, I mean, the one other thing I would add to that is you could possibly, in the beginning at least, team up with another architect in that other area, right? That just to get your feet wet and, you know, get some experience and help build your network that way, team up with someone else in outside your region or your geographic reach um, to get your name out there and get that network built somewhere else. Lots of, lots of ways, but none of them are probably like super fast or super easy. <laughs> no. They're not even fast or yes. easy. Regular fast yeah. or regular easy. <laughs> yeah. 
More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by David R. Mercer, CSI, AIA Allied Member and Territory Sales Manager for Peterson, maker of pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. David has been with Peterson since 2016 and has been in the architectural metals industry since 1991, holding positions in sales and management for product manufacturers and distributors. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us this morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. It's good to speak with you, Bob. No, we're happy to have you. Where are you coming from in this crack of dawn here for people listening? It's early. It is. <laughs> I reside in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Oh, what's the temperature like there now? You know, it's a beautiful fall morning here, I guess, technically. It's probably in the mid-60s this morning. Oh, yeah. Fall. That's a nice winter morning for us in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I think we're going to hit mid-90s today. Well, okay, we're not here to talk about weather or beautiful Minneapolis. We're here to talk about pack clad and the Precision Series tile line, which, you know what? I love this line. I don't get to use it as much as I want to, and it sits in my back pocket always on, ooh, is this my chance? Am I going to use it on this project? Because the scale of it's really nice. There's a couple different options. I'm happy to talk about it today, so let's get into it. You ready? I am. So... One of the things that I think we should start with is just the idea that there's three profiles that you can get. There's the cupped, flat, and the diamond. You want to talk about those a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Precision series tiles by pack clad allow the design community to get that key signature, whether it's a, a large format area or just a small accent area to be done with our three different profiles, either a cupped, a flat, or diamond profile. These are a stamped metal profile. And it's a nice alternative to your other profiles or roll form cladding systems. Precision tiles could be installed either on a roof or a wall, and they offer a concealed fastener. So there's no fasteners visible. They can be installed over plywood or over an elevated channel. There's no sealants involved with the product and just basic sheet metal tools are required for the installation. They are applicable for just about any structure that requires exterior wall cladding or a metal roof accent. These tiles are available in our 46 standard colors. And then Packlad does offer a wide variety of other paint finishes and paint systems. We've introduced a new ore series finish. We can adjust the gloss or sheen of our colors as custom colors. We can also change up the different metallic or mica flakes in the paint systems to add a little bit more brilliance to the colors. And speaking of colors, we also offer a color shift custom paint system as well, it is offering uh, different prints and textures. We do offer wood grain print pattern series as well. Hey, before we go off of the colors, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because the ore series, you guys just released, right? And that come out this year? That is correct. Packlad did introduce a new print pattern. We're calling it our ore series. And what it does is with a Hylar Kynar paint system, PVDS resin paint system, we're offering a 30-year finish warranty on that product. And what it is is a print pattern to mimic your natural metal look without the natural metal side effects within weathering or changing of uh, natural metals. That's a new product, new finish that is available in basically all our different light gauge 
metal panel systems, not only our precision tile series. Well, you know, there's three in particular I recently ordered samples for in my office, which was the black ore, the titanium ore, and then I decided to go crazy and I got the Luxor Dynasty, which is kind of this really cool coppery bronze color. It's funny that they're all called ore, but these are called Luxor. The one that I wanted that was the bronze copper finish. It's beautiful. I can just imagine what that would look like. It's like almost jewel-like. It's a great finish in case people want to know. Yeah, the design community's been really excited and we've been supplying lots of samples to present to building owners to give them that feel for what the final product would look like once it's installed on their project. It's been a new emerging line for PacLad. I really need to let people know that PacLad does have a new manufacturing facility in Washington State, just east of Tacoma in Bonnie Lake. This is going to help PacLad service that Northwest and West Coast market, as well as Alaska and Hawaii and throughout the Pacific Rim. And we're really excited to have this new plant coming online here in the near future for PacLad. Awesome. We ought to get a tour of that. Absolutely. That's right. We need a nice little trip out there. Well, we need a tour. Thanks for all that information, David. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this morning. For more information, visit pack-clad.com or send an email to pack-clad.com or call 1-800-P-A-C-C-L-A-D and find your local representative at packclad.com by clicking on the rep locator at the top of the website. So we appreciate it again. Yeah, thanks for joining us, David. Appreciate your time. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure speaking with both you, Bob, and Andrew. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, thanks so much. Cheers. Okay, the next question comes from ACB Wellman. And their question is, what are the significant differences in workflow between public architecture, and I'll broaden that to say commercial work, mm -hmm. and private residential work? So there's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot there's a lot of differences. That's a whole episode, but yeah. It's a whole episode. So I'm gonna focus on the thing that came to my mind first. Okay. And it had to do with the level of knowledge and experience that your client brings to the conversation. Most people that hire an architect to do a house haven't done a bunch of houses in the past. Mm -hmm. So this is the one that they're gonna do in their life. And they don't know how the process works. They don't know anything about what's normal, what's not normal, when we do A, what comes after A. They don't know any of these things. So I'll tell people the difference between doing high-end residential work and production residential work, again, is your ability to communicate with people. That's it. It's not about keeping water out. When you're doing residential work, your ability to manage the client has a much higher degree of importance, I think, than you trying to manage the client when they're extremely savvy about what's going on. I mean, I would agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, granted, I had a lot of commercial clients that didn't know anything either. But I think the first thing that popped in my mind as the difference between the two would be the hand-holding aspect. I think in residential work, you got to do a lot more hand-holding than you do in public work or commercial work or whatever it is. Because it boils down to basically what you said, that there's some experience level there. But even in my public or commercial work where they hadn't done a lot of work previously, I still didn't have to handhold them through the process. I mean, I had to educate them, but it wasn't quite the same. I think there's just a different level of attention expected between the two by the client, by the client. 
Yeah. Well, the other thing that I would throw on there just kind of as a as a second note to it is that the workflow through consultants is typically a lot different mm. in commercial work than it is in residential work. Sure. I'm doing a commercial job right now to where we have like 15 consultants. And when we have a meeting, there's like 30 people in the room. Yeah, yeah. And trying to coordinate schedules and workflow and who does what and when do they do it and coordinating with that person's scope of work. And most residential projects are staggeringly simple compared to that. Yeah. On the last episode we did on design development, you know, we listed some of the typical consultants that we might work with. And it's like structural engineer, landscape architect. I can still have a lot of them. I can have lighting, AV. I mean, I can have these people, but there's a scale of house that you have to ascend to start getting some of these consultants involved. And while that's true with commercial work as well, standard commercial projects probably have five consultants on them. Standard Hmm. residential projects have one. Maybe two, right? I would add to that though. Also, I think the difference in that is it works for clients as well. Like, Commercial projects, public projects, your client may be a group, a committee. I mean, it may be more than just the two people that own the house. I mean, typically they are, right? Even on the client side, it's a much bigger group of people that you're dealing with as opposed to just the two owners of the house. So everything is sort of multiplied. So, oh, it's interesting. Look, campaign.mo comes up again. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that we let two from you slip in. Bonus points for you. Look at you. No more after this. (laughs) And funny, well, the thing is, is now I feel really silly because the answer to both questions, I think, is the same for me, even though they're not the same question. Oh, yeah. So second round question is, what is something you learned in the industry that you hadn't been taught in school? And I already let that cat out of the bag. And it's communicate. Hmm. Like, that's the one thing we spent zero time talking about in school. Like, there was no... This is how you talk to people. And I don't mean yeah, like like using English words or using like your language or whatever yes. it is. This is something that now I feel is like one of my strongest assets. And the way I describe it is being able to gauge the temperature of the room, hearing what people aren't saying. You know, when somebody says this and this, what they aren't saying sometimes tells you a lot. And we don't spend any time on that in school. And maybe that's because they already acknowledge that most people aren't needed with that skill set. Like, you know, if I look in my office, mm-hmm. the ability to communicate with one another in court, that's a different sort of level of communication. Still valuable, still very, very important. But being able to, it shows up in so many different ways. Like even you speaking aspirationally about a project to an owner, you're in the business of dream fulfillment. And so being able to say yes to something without saying, well, no, you can't do that, or that's a bad idea, or like, how do you protect people from themselves and still be aspirational about it and still have people be excited and still get everybody galvanized behind like this vision that exists, which is a combination of how many number of people? That's a really important skill set. And the better communicator you are, the further you're going to go. I think that's true in almost any industry other than like brain surgery. Or accountant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say along those lines, I mean, I've got a different answer, but along those lines, I think during school, the issue there is you may learn how to communicate, but you're learning how to communicate with other architects. And there's not much emphasis placed on communicating with people who don't know anything about architecture, which is typically your clients. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And so that's the skill, I think, to me, when you talk about it, that's really the skill that's not there because 
you present your work and your projects. I mean, you're talking to other people that understand those things, but you don't spend enough time talking to people that have no clue about what you're saying. And I think that's that skill you talk about. And I agree that that will make you more successful being able to do that. Yes, you can live your whole career and not have to do that, but I think that it puts a ceiling on where your career can go if you're unable to do that. For me, I think it's more about, and it's funny, I have to think back. I mean, you have to think back further than me, but (laughs) (laughs) the thing that they didn't teach us in school was that design is a very small portion of what you actually have to do. Mm. And yes, we've talked about how design is everything and everywhere, but in reality, so much of what you do as an architect is about management, whether it's materials, resources, people, consultants, the project. Itself. I mean, so much about what we do is about management and not enough of that, I think, is emphasized in school, right? You spend most of the school thinking about design, 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 and there's very little emphasis placed on the management of all these things that you have to deal with as an architect. And to me, that's the biggest thing, I think. For me, the, the reason I say that is because, you know, not that far out of school, I didn't own my own firm. And so that level of all these other layers of things like got piled on real quick and I had no idea about a lot of it. So I think that that's really what it is for me is there's architecture is about a management of so many various things and we never really talk about it because it's mostly just how do we design this stuff and how do we design this? And right. That's about the only consideration. So. Well, it's funny while you were talking, I actually texted somebody to get an answer because I want to be specific with the picture I'm about to paint, but I actually made a comment very similar to what you just said to one of the other principals in the office, he sits next to me and he was standing up at this high top we have by our desk. And I made a joke and I go, man, isn't this what you dreamed about when you were in architecture school? And he was flipping through, this is for a project. He just texted me back. This project's $548 million Mm. that we're doing. That's the budget, $548 million. That's a big one. That's a big budget, right? That's a big one. And he was flipping through like a hundred pages of bid numbers at like four point font highlighting stuff for hours. Yeah. Trying to sort it out. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You know, and I go, nobody would think that that, like I can tell you with absolute certainty, never did I imagine part of my life would be flipping through a phone book of Excel spreadsheet data on the pricing of a project that's just over half a billion dollars. Yeah. You would have quit school if that was what they did. Yeah. Here's this whole semester. Guess what? We're going to look at spreadsheets of numbers and numbers and numbers. And guess what? There's multiples of the same number for the same thing and you have to sort it out. Oh. Yeah. And look for the needle in the stack of needles. Yeah. Where can we save some money? Yeah. And that's just corn shell. That is just corn shell number. So the idea that Again, I guess we have kind of a theme going. We have questions that kind of have overlapping answers that you learn like really what the job entails once you're in the industry that isn't really discussed very much or in depth when you're actually in school. The next question. <laughs> I'm, I have to take a pause. Uh, it's at so this great. One. I mean, I can't. Anyway, go ahead. You know what? And Okay. So as a little primer <laughs> for this. I included this because, I mean, I've done, I've written blog posts about it because I feel like I need to defend myself a little bit, but it, it never goes away. It never goes away. So this one comes from, yeah, Andrew won't, has nothing. This is a hundred percent Bob question here. No, I can add to it for sure because I agree with it. I mean, not the question, but the process, but go ahead. So this question comes from lest, L-E-S-T dot Matos 14. 
And what they wrote, maybe, fingers crossed, is a little tongue-in-cheek. The question is, are you as condescending to your employees as your red lines let on? <laughs> wow, he just, he's coming right at me. on the <laughs> Going for the gut. Bam. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, first off, ouch, the hurt my feelings a little bit. It wouldn't be the first yeah. time I've heard it. No. Okay. No. So, I go, obviously... I think I would have to be a little tone deaf for me to answer that question with my own opinion, right? Like, no, of course I'm not as condescending. I mean, that doesn't do any good. So I sent an email out to a couple of people that I work with, and I basically presented his question to them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you what I wrote to these employees that I work with. Just so you know, they're like, well, of course, what are they going to say? You're their boss. Well, first off, I don't maintain a boss dynamic in my office. So I'm not overly worried about that. But here's what I wrote. As someone who's been on the receiving end of my red lines, would you take a few minutes and give me your take on this question? I would like you to be as honest as possible. Either way benefits me, so I'm not motivated to have you tell me what you think I would want to hear. This is commentary for me now. The reason why I said either way benefits me, because if they say, yeah, you are, I mean, I want to know that. If they're mm-hmm. actually taking these sure. that like personal, and I'm, I want to know that. The wrong way. Yeah. And I have sure. a good enough relationship with everybody that I work with that they know that their answer won't be punitive. Like I will not punish them for them telling me the answer whichever way it goes. I feel yeah. confident about that. Yeah. So, so I got a couple answers back. One of them, and I'm going to have to bleep this out in the editing, or you're going to have to remember to yeah. edit, bleep it out. So their response was, I don't see how red lines in themselves can be condescending. Well, unless you write something like, this isn't how brick courses, you dumb f***. <laughs> that would be condescending red line. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Right? And he goes, what could potentially make someone perceive red lines as condescending is the attitude of the individual behind them and their willingness to explain the comments when asked. But of all the employers I've ever worked for, you are the most willing to explain the red lines you make. If asked, you always take the time to expand. I promise you that everyone who works with you notices and appreciates that. I know if I have a question about one of your markups, you're willing to explain it. All right. Pretty good. Right? Not bad. Mm -hmm. Sure. Another response I got was, in the context of our very small project teams, often just Bob and myself, Bob's red lines are more about making us think rather than being condescending for the sake of being condescending. Often it might be something he can tell did not get enough love or attention. Sometimes that needs more study. The other thing to note about Bob's process is that he does not simply plop a stack of red lines onto our desk. He will set aside a bit of time after hours if we need it and go through the red lines together to make sure the messages are being captured and that his comments are understood. There is no trying to figure out what he meant by a comment. He explains it in detail and makes sure we understand what he wants before we walk away. If you know Bob, you know he would never leave a rude red line directed at someone. Who would that benefit? So I go, yeah, people, I'm not a jerk. I mean, I am a jerk, but I'm not I'm not that jerk in the way I do my red line. Yeah. I, I just wonder, I'm trying to figure out, is it just because there's so much red? Would that, is that... That's what I think it is. I think it's because it's so much red. And to red. me, when I looked at, I mean, some of the things that you've done before, there's not much red on. My red lines are way worse. Like, I will bleed all over a sheet of paper, but I'm not rude about it. I'm asking questions about, well, what did you think about this? Or, you know, what is that? I'm not, I am not being 
a commanding dictator about, yeah, you messed this up and this is wrong and this is wrong. I usually am trying to say, well, you should look at this and correct this. And if we need to talk about it, that's fine. And I've actually started to do that now that I'm teaching mostly grad school. I'll drop red lines on them because that's the easiest way for me to do stuff and get the point across. And I did have last spring, I gave a set back to me. They're like, whoa, that's a lot of red. And I was like, yeah, but just read it. And then if you have questions or if you feel like it's too much, then we can talk. And of course, they never came back because they're not aggressive. I mean, there's a lot of red ink, but it's not aggressive in what I'm writing and what I'm pointing out and what I'm saying. It's like, just have you thought about this? And if you did, okay. I guess if I feel like, is it is it just coming from the fact that there's a lot of red, but not the message behind it? And to me, I don't think that that matters. I mean, if I did in blue ink, is that any better? I don't, again, I don't ever find red that aggressive either. I, to me, it just, it stands out and it's easy to see. Yeah, that's how I take it. Yeah. The other thing I think it's interesting is like, how is it possible to work at a place where you don't get red lines? That's the other thing. I, know. I mean, like, who doesn't do that anymore in some fashion? I feel like everybody still has to. No, I think everybody does it. I think it's just to kind of drop it off on your desk and be like, fix it all and not take the time to explain or understand. And it's like just dumping a bunch of garbage on somebody's desk, which I think, yeah, that's jerk. That's a jerk move. Well, the two times that I've gotten the most comments was one, I had a drawing and it just said, wow, dot, 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 terrible. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But, but again, people don't understand the story. And the person I was, it was Landon, oh. right? Landon, our old. You were sitting right next to him when you did it. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. He's sitting right next yeah. to me. And I wrote it as we were talking yeah. about it. Right. So it wasn't like, here's your instructions. Wow. Terrible. Yeah. It wasn't commentary on his work. We hadn't talked about it. That launched an avalanche or maybe it set <laughs> the reputation that I'm, I write mean red lines. You're so mean, you condescending bastard. I know. I am. Well, the other one was when we talked about red lines as a design development tool. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually like drawing elevations in red that just hadn't been thought through or somebody didn't take the time or they don't understand how millwork works yet because they're young uh, and inexperienced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm like, hey, you need to have a style here. So corners, drawers at the corner don't hit the handle. You know, sure. there's yeah, yeah. things like that that go on there. But it looked like a lot. Those two posts in particular drove a lot of that, wow, you're a maniac. But it's also at a scale to where maybe they didn't, couldn't, they just see a lot of red and they don't really yeah. see what the words are. So I can think of. Yeah. I mean, I think red lines are useful for everything. And again, it's not, yes, I think there is a poor way to do them, but I don't think that's what you do. And I know that's not what I do. I use them as a teaching tool, not as a, you are stupid tool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, let's go to the next question. This one, I bet we can answer in less than one minute. <laughs> that doesn't suggest that it's a bad question. It just means, I mean, I could make it. I could make this answer go a lot longer, but I don't think we need to. And it comes from Saturn underscore EV. And their question was, how much drafting does a fully licensed architect do? Well, that depends on what their job is. It Nowadays, varies. I do almost no drafting. And I do very, very little drafting at all. But there are other people that are at my level in my office that they draw constantly. It's just what their job is, what the role is, how they like to engage and work with the people on the team. Interesting. There are people at your level that do still do a lot of drafting. That surprises me, actually. Yeah. I would assume the further up you go. Well, that's the thing. So I always kind of chastise them. There's actually a guy named Jason in my office who seems to be able to do just about anything. He was actually on the podcast last December answering the hypothetical about, mm. you know, if you got paid $30,000 a month to not bathe, how long could you last? And he goes, I'm out. 
(laughs) (laughs) So I hassle Jason every now and then because you could give him an office building and he'll do 100% of it by himself. He'll PA Mm. it and he'll PM it. He'll manage it. He'll draw it. He'll detail it. Chances are he designed it. He'll manage the consultants. He engages with – he does all of it by himself. Yeah. Not a lot of people can do that and not a lot of people have the desire to do it. And he's a principal in the office. Mm. And he's been doing this for two decades. I hassle him every now and then saying, hey, Jason, I think it's time for you to focus on making little Jasons. But that's just not his thing. He doesn't want to work that way. Yeah, He works silently behind the scenes to weave his tapestries, but Mm -hmm. he likes drawing. He likes doing the work and he's good at it. So no one's going to tell him not to do it. And I'm a hundred percent okay with that. I would love to do that. But, and again, I think it's just the owner, the more employees and the larger my firm grew. By the time I had about six people, seven people, I was doing hardly any drafting, like none because I'm redlining projects. I'm managing people. To me, it's less about being a licensed architect than it is your position within an organization. Mm-hmm. For example, I know we've talked before about, I guess, was the young lady in your office who she's licensed and she's 20-something, 20 27 years old, two years out of school or whatever it is. No, oh, 25. 25. Right? Yeah, she's 25. One week, one week 25. Yeah. Licensed. She's still probably drafting. She's fully licensed, but she's still probably doing a lot of drafting. Oh, yeah. It just depends on where you're at in your career, I think, more than... Whether you're a licensed architect or not, I don't think that's the defining factor. I think it's more about your role in the firm that you're working for and what that is. So, no. And size of firm matters sure. too, because everyone has more silo, more siloed responsibilities. Sure, sure. So, as in the example of the next person who asked the question, <laughs> yeah, he does all the drafting all in his yep. firm, and he does all the marketing, and he does all the billing, and he does he does everything. He does everything. So the next question comes from our good buddy, Lee Callisti, which I can't remember if Lee submitted a question before, but this was a good one. And it was- No, I think this is the first one I think I've ever seen. Oh, from him? He's been holding out on us with the good questions. <laughs> All right. So his question for today's show is, are large firms exempt from the issues small firms have with inexperienced clients and GCs? The answer is no. There you go. Great question, Lee. Thanks. <laughs> well, I mean, I would agree. I don't think it matters. At all. I think no matter your firm size, you're probably still dealing with inexperienced clients and inexperienced GCs and all those sorts of things. I will tell you that I have more of those issues on the residential projects that I do in our office than the $550 million project. Sure. I would imagine. (laughs) You know, those people know what they're doing. Yes. But yeah, as a percentage, I would say. If we just break it down into numbers, large firms are far more exempt from those issues than small firms, but they're not gone. I have a project I'm doing in Arkansas right now that's killing everybody, and it's because it's a new project type for the owner. Now, they're very savvy with what their core business is, but they're branching out into a market sector that they don't have a lot of experience, and we've had a lot of growing pains on this project. They know what they're doing in other areas, just different on this. So, mm. so no, we're not exempt, but we are insulated a bit, I'd say. That'd be my answer. Yeah. And I would say that to me, that number, I mean, I don't know, it depends on where you draw that line of small firms, but I think you're still dealing with those kind of issues for sure, up to 50, 60 people probably in the firm size where you're, you're still going to get, I mean, not a lot of it, like I say, it grows less and less, but some stuff, especially at least here in Texas, 
public work, you don't have any control over the GCs that end up on a project. So even though they might look good on paper, they could be terrible. And I mean, I've had that happen a few times and you just have to deal with it. So. All right. The next question comes from a friend of mine. He used to sit next to me for years. He left me to go work for another firm and broke my heart. But I'm still going to answer his question. We're playing favorites today. We're playing favorites today. Well, you know what? It's actually a good question. And so he's not getting on the list because I know who he is. It's a good question. Problem is, I don't know that I know an answer for it. I was like, it's a terrible question. I don't like it at all, but... It's because you don't have an answer. It's not a terrible it's question. It's fine. I know. It's a terrible question. Okay, we'll see. So this comes from my buddy, Brandon Heek. And his question is, what haven't you accomplished in your career that you are still striving for? A fat paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah okay now I've, I've already got that i'm not worried about i was gonna say i don't think your paycheck's too bad uh, i'm doing okay you know it's kind of funny when i left my last office it seems like for the last i don't know 20 years anytime i've changed a job or really maybe i should go back even further i change because i get bored i change because i feel stagnant i change because i'm looking for something new to do or i just want to like I started the blog because I felt like I didn't know something or I wanted to learn a new skill. So mm -hmm. there's no shortage of things that I haven't accomplished in my career that I'm still striving for. I hope that I always have a long list of things that I'm still striving for. Honestly, it's what gets me out of bed most days. I don't know that there is a finish line. So I know that's a very unsatisfactory answer. I'm trying to think, okay, well, what would be the one thing that I'd want? Totally unsatisfying. I've won, I've gotten design awards. I've got, I got elevated fellow. I've, I've, a lot of amazing things have happened to me in my career. Yeah. You're living the dream. I am living the dream. You know what I'd actually really like? And I don't know if this is really, I don't know if I'm straying out of bounds on this. I would like to design and build my own house. That's what I would like in my career. I would like as an architect that does mm -hmm. residential work, I would like to design my own house. That's what I would like to do. How's that? Is that an answer? Does that, do you think that's it? I think it's a good goal. That's a good answer. Yes. Perfect. Killed it. Mine's going to be the... Are you going to say, my goal is to build my own house? <laughs> no, no. It's weird because I'm having to readjust all that right now, honestly. Yeah. Because I'm kind of in my second career, essentially, and I'm trying to figure out what all those things are, to be quite honest. I don't know what my new career goals are or what I'm still striving for. Funny to think about it when I was knee-deep in my practice, my one of my goals would have been to get a million-dollar check. Mm -hmm. You said a big fat check, but like... To have a project where I got actually a check that had seven digits on it, it would have been made my day for part of a fee. But, you know, I don't know. Now, at this point in my new career, I haven't quite figured out what those things are. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to settle into them and, and see what they are. So I don't really have an answer for that at all, which is why it's so hard for me. But because I don't know, I'm in transition. Well, that's kind of an answer in and of itself, right? Yeah. It's it's still the same thing. Like, it's a, it's a hard question to answer because it suggests that you've got it all figured out. Yeah. Or there's only one thing left that you haven't figured out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Next question comes from Nick underscore T underscore Quinn. Your iPad Pro first impressions, how you find yourself using it. All right. I've said it. I love it. Now, first, before Andrew starts dogging on me, I've had iPads before. I've tried doing the things I'm doing on them now before I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that's making it work now is the software. There's software that exists that does 
what I want to do the way I want to do it. That's a big part of it. And the other part is the pencil, the stylus finally doesn't suck. I don't think it's the software because the Morfolio that you're using has been around for forever, but it's the pencil to me. I think the pencil made the big difference for you. Oh, 100%. 100%. I tried all these different styluses. Those big fat rubber stylus tips and stuff. You can't draw with those. You could never draw with those. Well, it was also the lag. Yeah. You know, and I remember there was a stylus once that had like a, it was like a pencil and it had a little tiny like stainless steel bar with a plastic puck. At the end of it. Like with a little disc on the end. Yeah. Yes. And it was the idea that like I couldn't stand when I would draw that the lag between where I was dragging my stylus and the line that was showing up was like, I don't know, an eighth of an inch behind. Just right? enough to be annoying. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. it. Drove me absolutely crazy. But pencil works great. And the other thing that's worked out really well, and I, this might just be a matter of timing. With all the virtual meetings that we're doing, and this is one of the things that really motivated me to finally make the jump, is if I do like a go-to meeting or if I do a Teams meeting or something like that, I'll log in on my computer. And just like Andrew and I, we're not in the same town, but we're looking at each other through Zoom call. I'll log into the same Zoom call from my iPad. And then that way, if I start talking, I can stay on the camera, but then I will share my screen from my iPad and I can draw on it in real time with people. Yeah. And why that's so important to me now is, one, I have virtual meetings now on a level that I didn't ever come close to before, but I'm left-handed and I use the mouse with my right hand. So trying to draw using a mouse with my incorrect hand was agony. <laughs> and now I can actually draw and it makes sense and I can write notes and I can do things that look like they should look because I can use my left hand on a tablet with the right software. and it just it's changed the way that I've interfaced with people remotely, digitally, that sort of thing. It also allows me for, and it's funny because I don't write as many blog posts as I used to, like almost none these days. But there used to be this issue of, hey, I draw a drawing on trace paper or whatever, scan it, then take it into Photoshop, resize it, and yeah, then export down it. Out. Like all these things I had to do to get that content so I could use it in a digestible format on the website. Now I, I can cut out like 50% of my steps and I can just go straight from the tablet, whoop, drop it onto the website. Yeah. That part has saved me a lot of time. I like that as well. I'm not going to dog you out. It's fine. That was a you-centric question, so it's fine. Yes, I love that I'm right all the time. I've been telling you for years. Of course, <laughs> but it's fine. And actually, nothing made me nothing Whatever. made me more happy actually than when we were in Chicago recently and you didn't have a laptop. All you had was your iPad. And you were doing all the same stuff that you used to do and be able to do from your iPad. Even though I was snoring beside you while you were doing it, it was still like, yep, I was right five years ago. <laughs> uh, I still think it's different. Oh, like I said, I tried it. Of course you No, 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 no. What I'm saying is I tried making it work before and I just couldn't. I don't know if I just wasn't there mentally. I don't know why it was that I couldn't make it work a couple of years ago in the way that I can make it work now. But it's different now for me than it was years ago when you first brought it up. All right. This question. I didn't know how it's going to answer this question, but I think I already figured it out All right. in a previous question. And it's from Captain Steve Zero. So Cap N, the letter N, Steve Zero. Captain Steve Zero. Captain Steve-O Steve is probably yeah, what it's be. supposed yeah. to be 
but he's having to be crafty about it. Not really a question, but we included it. It just says retirement goals. And not even a question mark. You know, <laughs> not a even statement. a question mark. Come on. Come on, Captain Steve-O. Yes, my retirement goal is to retire. <laughs> that is my retirement goal. Is that that is something that I can do. Other than that, I'm still, I'm early 50s, man. I'm not thinking about retirement. I mean, I think about winning the lottery and therefore I can retire. I think about that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as like naturally retiring, there's nothing intrinsic to who I am or being an architect that has an impact on that. I like to travel, but I don't like the act of traveling. I like being in other places. Yeah. You know, just like last week, I was in a couple different countries. It was cool. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Getting there, getting back, hated it. I hated that. Once teleportation happens, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. I'd like to design. Actually, you know what? I'd be okay if I didn't design and build my own house, but I would like to design and build like a, maybe like a second house, (laughs) smaller. I only say second house, not because I'm bougie, but because it doesn't have to be all that because I don't have to live there all the time. Yeah. Like just like a retreat place or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It can be like four rooms in the middle of nowhere where nobody can bother Mm -hmm. me. That's... (laughs) Yeah, that's my retirement yeah. goal. Yeah, mine changes sort of constantly. Right now, I'm really fixated on my move to an island and own a bar. Retirement plan. I thought you were going to rent mopeds. Well, it's either own a bar or rent mopeds. But rent mopeds means I got to maintain them. I think owning a bar is an easier way to go, even though there's more headaches, but there's less sort of work. <laughs> and actually, I could just I could be a bartender. I cannot be a bartender. I could pay somebody to do it, but. I can spend my days with some kind of beach-level cocktail in my hand and just live life. That sounds like, for being a bartender, you just drinking all day? Sounds like a bad business plan. There'll be other people there. You know what? If I owned a bar, I would want it to be barely solvent. Uh, Yeah. Right? (laughs) Like, the least amount of clientele that I could possibly have and still keep the lights on. Yeah, I just want to be breaking even. I'm not looking to turn a profit. I'm not looking to... I'm just... (laughs) Enough to maintain. That is it. Yes. Yeah. For yes. Sure. Yeah. That's the. You know what? That is. That would be living that is the it. dream. Yeah. You know. You don't have to worry about stuff anymore. I don't have to get caught up in all the crazy stuff. I'm just, you know, on a beach at a bar. You just pouring drinks for people, and I make enough to make it work, and that's all I need. All right. It's not a bad answer, actually. We'll see. I'm in my late 40s, so I got a lot more time. Or I'm going to cash in early, and then by the time I'm your age, that's what I'll be doing. <laughs> All right, so that's all the questions that we're going to take the time to answer <laughs> because uh show's running pretty long. It's a good length show today, and we still haven't done the what's the rank. Yes. And I think we've been a little too positive on our most recent <laughs> rankings. <laughs> okay, yeah. So instead of focusing on the best of something, we're going to pivot a bit and go in another direction. All right, you ready for this? I am. Today we're going to rank, drumroll please. The worst three vegetables. (laughs) And you know what? If you think it's a vegetable, for our purposes, it's a vegetable, okay? Oh, okay. I don't know what that means, but all right. If somebody goes, I hate tomatoes. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Don't come at me going, it's a fruit. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You know what? I'm going to punch you in the throat. Not really, but. It goes on a salad. I mean, if you think it's a vegetable, it's a vegetable. Yeah, Yeah. that's fine with me. Okay. Yeah, it works. All right. It works. Let's be negative. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. My question. So you got to tell okay. me the third three? most disgusting vegetable. Yeah. English peas. 
Oh, really? I do not like English peas because they're mushy and I, I just, no. Yeah, I get I don't that. like peas. I don't <laughs> like peas at all. Don't like them in anything. I mean, even in shepherd's pie, which I like, I'm picking out the peas. I just, I don't do peas. I don't want to do like a pile of peas. <laughs> but if they're mixed into something like a chicken pot pie, Man, it's I'm fine. Still, I, you know, I'll fight through it. Yeah, but I would rather not. I would rather not. You know what it is? It's like the vegetable version of a hot dog, right? There's it's a little like snap. I know. And it. then the mushy it stuff in the middle. snaps oh, and like- I know. It. It's the yes. grossest. I don't like it. It's way, it's way worse because it's like a mushy hot dog. There's no, like, the inside is super mushy. Yeah. Nope. Not for me. Okay. You're not the only person today that told me that they don't like English yeah. peas. So, I don't really like them either, but they're not top three. Well, this top three was hard for me because I don't like many vegetables. I mean, I don't hate them. So I had to pick the ones I really don't like, but there's not many. I was prepared. I have so many, hey, Andrew, hamburger is not a vegetable <laughs> joke at the nice. ready. I mean, I have a lot of these. <laughs> so, Okay. So let me go with number three for me. Lima beans. Yeah, that's a good one. Oh, there's <laughs> the face you just made. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even thought of that one. That wasn't even on my radar because, yeah, but no, those are bad. bad. It's like eating a yeah, blister. It's- it's, like, it's so gross, the skin that's on a lima yeah, bean. Yeah, that's true. It's a horror show. I never thought about that. That's gross. Ugh. That's gross. Let's say you just, you're just sitting on a couch for a long time, and you go, you know what? I'm out of shape. I need to go exercise. And you go run 10 miles. The blister that's on the bottom uh, of your foot from that run, that's, stop. that's what a lima bean is. Stop. It's so it gross. Is. I'm not stop. wrong. <laughs> that's what that's they're so- So disgusting. Lima beans. That's the worst. It really should be number one. I can't even think of the last time I had a lima bean, but uh, okay. My mom loved, oh. she loved lima beans. We go, what's for dinner? She'd go cornbread and lima beans. I'm like, are you literally trying to kill me? Oh, that's gross, man. Gross. Yeah, mm. like the smell mm, of mm, boiled mm, lima mm, beans is pretty no. bad. No. Oh. I haven't thought about that right. one. So let's go to <laughs> number two. should have been on my list, baby. Um, <laughs> uh, so for me, number two is going to be cauliflower. All right, you know, I support that as well. I don't like it's chalky. Like I mean I like broccoli, but I do not like cauliflower. It's just yeah. they're completely different and cauliflower is like terrible. It is like literally eating a box of chalk. And I don't care how you cook it or what I mean, even when you put cheese sauce on it, I'm like, mm, it's or cheese yes. covered chalk. I don't want That's that. A- it's gross. <laughs> I'm like no part pass, you know? Yes. They're like, ooh, it'll it'll taste like whatever you put on it. And I go, Yeah, no nope. chalk with <laughs> Frank's oh, red exactly. hot sauce on it. I know. Exactly. I see him on TikTok making these cauliflower steaks and stuff. And I'm like, dude, that's garbage. That's gross. It's garbage. It still tastes like chalk. Forget it. It's the worst. So if someone was going to come at me because lima bean is actually not a vegetable. Yeah. I was like, if somebody came at me, I was going to put cauliflower as my number three. So I'm with you on that. I hate cauliflower. Gross. It's the worst. People eating it just plain with some branch. It's always on those vegetable trays. And I'm like. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> yeah, crudité. That just means throw it away later in French. Uh, I know. <laughs> okay, my number two is artichoke. Oh, yeah, I was wondering. The amount of work you got to put in to cook an artichoke, first off, not worth it. It's not worth it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I hate to be overly graphic about it, but if you kind of have like a gross burp, like a verp, <laughs> that's what artichoke tastes like. It's the uh, word. I don't oh. like artichokes. I Mm-mm. like them actually. So no, you probably like the thing you're dipping it in, which is butter. No, or I mean, mayonnaise and lemon or something. No, no, I don't mind artichokes actually. But I get it. I get it. 
that's too much work for like the teeniest little bit. You got to scrape your teeth on the back of a leaf to get one <laughs> teeny piece of something that you spent nine hours making pass. Yeah, I would never cook it. If it's somewhere and I order it or it shows up on something of the side or something, it's fine. But yeah, I would never cook it because, yeah, it takes too much time. I didn't have that kind of time. Spinach artichoke dip? Gross. Oh, I love that. That's good stuff. Oh, yeah. I don't mind artichokes. All right. What's your number one? I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for this, actually, (laughs) if I had to imagine. My number one is actually green beans. Oh, I don't like green beans either. I loathe green bean. Don't come at me with any kind of green bean stuff. Casserole. I don't care what it is, right? I just, to me, those are the worst. There's no good way to cook those things. I don't care how you do it. Oh, no, no. Get fresh ones and we blanch them in. Nope. Garbage. Green beans are the worst. <laughs> I don't like green beans. It's like eating a green banana peel. Like, I, it's gross. I don't want it. It's all stringy and chew it. No. Nope, 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 nope. Okay, so look, I'm not going to come at you for that because I don't want to eat like a plate of green beans either. But I can tell you, my mom preferred to serve them French cut style, which is like, oh yeah, it's like gross. They're slivered up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. I do like green bean casserole though. So I mean, I go, all right, that's okay. But like when you snap the beans, that was another thing my mom used to, I'd have to sit in the kitchen and mm-hmm. snap beans with her for like a snap month. Snap beans all the time? Oh, yeah. They're like squeaky. When I bite them, it like the texture, I don't like that. I don't like it. So. Actually, to me, that's what it is. It's like a banana filled with lima beans. That's what green beans are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't like them. That's, that's yeah. terrible. I okay. don't want them. I don't want them. Look, I don't think you're going to get nearly as much hate for your number one grossest vegetable as I'm going to get for mine. Okay. You ready for this? Yeah. Eggplant. Oh. Yeah. Um, nope. Really? Yeah. I've never had a... G- Here's what it is. Eggplant parmesan. Come on, man. You either love eggplants or you hate eggplants. Hmm. They're mushy. They're just... Everything about them is terrible. I don't like mushy stuff. I'm indifferent. Granted, I don't. I could probably count the number of times I've eaten eggplant on one hand, or maybe even three fingers. But yeah, that makes you the luckiest person on in this call. <laughs> I've never had an opportunity to eat a lot of eggplant, but I feel that way about squash. Like I don't like yellow squash when it's cooked because it gets all mushy and weird. And I mean, it didn't make my top, but I feel the similar way about it. I mean, I don't like any sort of gourd. <laughs> I don't want to eat any kind. Of- <laughs> Gourd vegetable, you know? I'm like, that's a pass. Don't cook those things. I don't want them. I like zucchini. For some reason, zucchini and squash seem to get lumped together, I think. They do. But they're different. And you me. know what? That's not fair to the zucchini. Yeah. Zucchini is a little bit firmer in its consistency, I think, when you cook it. Whereas squash has like the big seeds and they just get all mushy and watery and gross. Yeah. I imagine that zucchini's parents tell him, you need to stop hanging around yeah. with that Quit bad crowd out squash. squash. Yes. I know. Like you have a future if you stay stay away from squash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Eggplant. I just don't I don't like it. I don't like anything yeah. about it. I don't blame you. Look, I think all the vegetables we listed are terrible. <laughs> we could have right I mean, I could have the top we could have had more, I think. But <laughs> yeah. could have been the top ten worst vegetables. Here are the thirteen vegetables tied for number one. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. So bad. So bad. Ugh. All right. I think we've reached the point where we can call that a wrap. 
Thank you for being with us today for episode 108, Ask the Show Fall Edition. Special thanks to our sponsor, Peterson, which manufactures pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Peterson's products include wall and roof systems in both steel and aluminum. Pack-clad systems are available nationwide in 46 standard Kynar-based PVDF colors. Visit pack-clad.com to learn more. In addition, special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish an astoundingly informative new episode. While you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star Thanks for answering my question, Bob and Andrew. You guys are the best rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this fantabulous episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Be safe, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.